Thank you, worship team. Boys and girls that are going to Children's Church, you are dismissed. As a reminder, next Sunday will be the first Sunday of the month. We will not have Children's Church next Sunday because of that. So kindergarten through third grade, entering kindergarten through third grade, you're welcome to head on out to Children's Church. Boys and girls that are taking notes on the four boxes page, you're welcome to do that. There'll be a prize for those of you afterwards that have done so. I'll give you your boxes throughout the service, kind of mixing them up, spacing them out. Not all at the beginning, not all at the end. So I want to read you from the news headlines for a minute. Woman uses unusual weapon to kill warlord. Super promising leader loses his work after repeatedly ignoring warning signs. A divided nation with factions goes to war with each other. Women lured to party kidnapped and nobody seems to care. Man jealous for power and prestige leads mass executions in two cities. Violence on the rise. Everyone has a different definition of right and wrong and disregards national religious heritage. I'm reading you the headlines from the book of Judges, not the headlines from today. But I think as we work through the book of Judges, as we look at it, we can really begin to see ways in which the book of Judges demonstrates God's faithfulness to a broken culture. And we cry out to God to be faithful today to people like us that are broken and who live in a broken culture. This morning, we're going to pick up in the book of Judges, the end of chapter 8, actually, page 246 if you're using the pew bible let me go ahead and get you to turn to page 246 we're going to begin in chapter 8 starting in verse 29 last week we talked about Gideon this week we get one of the more unknown characters in the book of Judges we get the character of Abimelech and next week we get one called Jephthah so two unusual characters over these next two weeks and then we get to Samson and all that involves is involved in his life. If you don't have a Bible at home and a translation you can read and understand, please keep that pew Bible, uh, take it home, read it, follow along with us in our reading plan, or if you're new to reading the Bible, read through the book of Matthew, asking questions. It's okay to ask questions about the Bible. Just don't ask them of Dr. Google. Just like Dr. Google does not always diagnose healthcare situations, you might want to ask somebody better than Dr. Google or your friendly AI partner. Ask a real person uh, with your questions about the Bible as you read. Follow along. Today we're going to look at Abimelech and how he continued and in many cases expedited the terrible trajectory that ended the life of Gideon. Things went well for Gideon until they did not. And he starts on a downward trajectory and he's going to speed up through his son, that downward trajectory as things move from bad to worse. Verse 29, Jerubbabel, another name for Gideon, Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, 
who was in Shechem, also bore him a son and called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abrazites. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Bereth their god. And the people of Israel did not remember their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done in Israel. So to summarize this a little bit at this point, after Gideon saw God's miraculous works, Gideon makes some good decisions and a series of bad decisions. Like many of the compromised and broken leaders of his day, he takes on many wives, violating God's commands and leading to destruction. This includes taking a slave-type wife or a concubine. He doesn't live with her. She lives in another town, and he makes periodic visits for whatever he would want to make periodic visits for, okay? So with this lower-priority wife, He has a son named Abimelech. And verse 33 reminds us that just as Gideon was ignoring God's mighty works in his own life and disobeying God, so also the people were regularly ignoring the mighty works of God on their behalf, and they turned back to idolatry. Again, they did not remember. The people of Israel turned again If you've been working with us each week in in the book of Judges, you are used to that word. Again and again, they do it again. They turn from the Lord again and again. The book of Judges again and again notes their idolatry and evil works. Gideon didn't live for God in all the ways he should have. He did in many, but not in all. And at the end of his life, he walked away from God And today, we're going to see one of his sons run away from God. Let's look at verse 1, chapter 9. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerubbabel, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in all the ears of the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jerubbabel rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother, and they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of their idol Baal Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Orphra and killed his brothers, the son of Jerubbabel, 70 men on one stone. Except for Jotham, the youngest son of Jerubbabel was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together on all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. So though Gideon resisted the call to be king and told the people that God was their king, Abimelech does not resist that call to be king. In fact, he openly persuades people to make him king. He goes to his relatives in his hometown and says, Gideon's dead, there's 70 leaders. Do we want 70 leaders or do you want one? And if you're going to have one, why not have a guy from your own area who's your own flesh and blood, who knows you and will represent you. And because all politics are local politics, they go with him and they give him some money and he hires a bunch of bad guys to do bad stuff. And they do bad stuff and execute all of his siblings except for one who's about to give a speech in verses 7 through 21 to them on how they've acted unfaithfully. And I'm going to summarize that for you. 
Jotham comes along, the escaped youngest son, not to battle them and lead guys to take it back, but instead tells them from a safe distance a story about qualified candidates to lead the people that resist and an unqualified candidate. And he compares this unqualified candidate to Abimelech. And he essentially calls Abimelech a thorn bush. He says, you're not a mighty oak tree. You're not a fig tree. You're not an olive tree. You're useless. Nobody wants you, and yet you're in charge. Okay? He calls Abimelech a worthless thorn bush that can't help the people. And he tells them essentially, hey, go try to find shade like under a thorn. Okay? That's like trying to hide from that yesterday's rainstorm underneath a power line. It's just not going to work. Okay? Go find shade under a thorn. And he says to them, to the people, you haven't acted in good faith, and you haven't done things right, so instead of rejoicing, you as the people need to know that fire is going to come and devour you, because that's all a thorn bush is good for, to be burnt up, and that's what's going to happen, according to Jotham. It's a prophecy of the Lord, and we're going to see that play out in the rest of chapter 9. Boys and girls, in box one, draw a thorn bush, put a crown on it, and then show people trying to hide in the shade from it. Good luck representing all of that thorn bush with a crown and people trying to hide in the shade from that thorn bush. It doesn't go well. Like if you get too close to it, what's going to happen? Ouch, right? Like you bump into a thorn, it doesn't go well. But if you're too far from it, you're not going to get shade. It doesn't go well when you try to hide in the shade of a thorn bush. Okay, if you need to try that out, you're welcome to do so this afternoon, but I would take my word for it, okay? So, verse 22, picking up at verse 22. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. So, things seem to be going well. God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. By the way, Shechem seems like just a name of a location, and to us, it is. But to them, it really wasn't just some unknown location. It is at the oak of Shechem that their forefather, Abraham, first sacrificed to the Lord in Canaan. It was at Shechem where the people gathered under Joshua to declare their forever obedience. Joshua, you're dying. We're forever going to remember the Lord. We'll never go after those idols of the land. It was at Shechem that they did that. It was at Shechem that they declared their obedience to the Lord before Joshua's death. This today would be like gathering at Gettysburg to begin a new civil war. Or gathering at the Lincoln Memorial and starting a speech by saying, I have a dream that tries to reinstitute slavery. This was a historical marker of a place where they had always dedicated themselves to the Lord. And now here they are saying, we're going to use pagan money to pay for you to kill your brothers because we want you to be king, not God our king. At the place of their greatest successes in the past, they were now making a series of disastrous declarations in the present. They had forgotten the Lord. We get to verse 24. So, God sent this evil spirit that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers and the leaders of Shechem. The leaders of Shechem, the city, put men in ambush against Abimelech on the mountaintops. They robbed anyone who passed by along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. So essentially what's happened at this point is they have set up their own version of pirates or raiders and whenever people, merchants travel through, they just take all the stuff 
and it makes the king look really bad if he can't guarantee safety for the people. So they're doing that. And verse 26 runs around. Gaal, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him. And they went out into the fields, and they gathered the grapes from the vineyards, and they trod on them and held a festival, and they went to the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gaal, the son of Ebed, said, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbabel, and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem. Why should we serve him? Oh, that this people were under my hand. I would remove Abimelech, and I would say to Abimelech, increase your army and come out. All right, so after a night of drunken revelry, Gaul says, make me your leader. I can do better, and I can defeat that wimp, okay? This is good Old Testament smack talk like happens before a wrestling event, or maybe I should say for those from the South, from a wrestling event, okay? They're about to throw down here because he's talked smack and word's going to get back out because it always gets out in these stories. And here's what happens, okay? When Zebul, the son of the ruler of the city, he heard the words of Gaul, the son of Ebed. His anger was kindled and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly saying, behold, Gaul, the son of Ebed and his relatives have come up to Shechem. They're stirring up the city against you now. Therefore, go by night. You and the people who are with you. Set an ambush in the field. In the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. And when he or the people who are with you come out against you, you may do to them as you want. Okay, so the ruler of the city says, hey, I'm still with Abimelech. I'm not with this new dude who's all talk, no action. Or maybe he's just in for a good fight and wants to see what's going to happen. Okay, so... He does that. He sends word, and then we get to verse 34. Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night, set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gaul, the son of Ebed, he went out. He stood in the entrance of the gate of the city, and Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gaul saw the people, he said to Zebul, Look, people are coming down from the mountains. And Zebul said to him, You mistake the shadows of the mountains for men. So, look, he's standing at the edge of the city. He's looking out, and he's like, Out there. Look, Gaul. Gaul says, Out there. Zebul, out there, there's guys coming. And he said, nah, man, you're crazy. You're just, I don't, don't know everything you did last night, but you're still messed up from last night. You're just seeing things. Your eyes are playing tricks on you. Okay? Gaul spoke again and said, look, the people are coming down from the center of the land. One company's coming from the direction of the Diviner's Oak. And Zebul said to him, where is your mouth now? You who said, who is Abimelech that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despise? Go out now and fight with them. Put your money where your mouth is, stop your talk, and go battle. Big boy, put on your fighting shoes and gloves and get out there. Now's your time. If you're going to be the leader, go. And they do. Abimelech. Gaul went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem. He fought with Abimelech. Abimelech chased him. He fled before him, and many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Aruma, and Zebul drove out Gaul and all his relatives, so they could not dwell at Shechem. So we have who's the winner. Abimelech is the winner because he'd hired all the bad dudes from a long time ago, and the bad dudes from Abimelech beat the bad dudes from Gaul, and there we go. All seems to be well until the next day. The following day, the people of the city, not the rebellious ones, but the people of the city, went out to the field. What are they doing out in the field? They're like harvesting. It's harvest season. They're just peacefully gathering up their crops. 
And Abimelech was told, so he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and he saw the people coming out of the city. So he arose against them and he killed them. And Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city while two companies rushed upon them and they surrounded them all who were in the field and they killed them. And then Abimelech fought against the city that day. He captured the city and he killed the people who were in the city, not just the ones in the fields. And he razed or tore down the city and then he sowed it with salt to make sure that nothing was ever going to grow there again. He is on a rampage. All right? He is going full rage monster mode at this point. Okay? Absolute rage monster in every possible way. Anybody that gets in his way and anything that didn't even have anything to do with it, he's going after it. When all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem, verse 46, when all the leaders of the Tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the house of Elbereth. And Abimelech was told that the leaders of the Tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people with him. And he took an axe in his hand and he cut down a bundle of brushwood, brushwood and took it and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, what you have done, seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech, put it against the stronghold. So think of a big tower and they set the stronghold on fire and all the people of the tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. He is still going full rage monster mode and now he has done so with fire. But he's not done yet with his rampage. Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city. So what do we expect here? Of course, again, all the men and the women fled up to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof of the tower. And how did this go last time? Last time, the dude who was prophesied to be nothing but a fire lit the tower on fire. And what does he go for? He comes near to the tower. Verse 52, and fought against it and drew near to the tower, the door to burn it with fire. And a certain woman, unnamed, threw an upper millstone on his head and crushed his skull. And at this point, it is appropriate to laugh because it is comical. This is intended to be comical. You should see this like a cartoon. Okay, so dude going full rage, monster mode, comes to a second tower to light it on fire. He looks up probably to taunt them, and a woman drops a nine-pound rock on his head. And like he's got the little stars that float around. No, in this case, he's actually dead. Almost. He quickly called to the young man, his armor bearer, and he said to them, draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. How dare he die such an inglorious death to a woman? in that time so instead he turns to his buddy and he's like hey you stab me so that the records of history have it right that i did not die to a woman with a nine pound stone so he did the young man thrust him through and he died and when the men of israel saw that abimelech was dead everyone departed peacefully to his home okay i want you to notice that the thing that he feared the most in this very moment like please just somebody kill me so that it's not a woman that everybody knows kills me. It's actually recorded for the last 3,000 years of history. And this morning, like, we are telling the story again of the guy not wanting to die at the hands of a woman. And now we actually are telling it not only did he die at the hands of a woman, but he didn't want to be known for dying at the hands of a woman who dropped a rock on his head. It appears to all be by chance. And it is not by chance, as we see in the next verse. 
Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their own heads, and upon them the curse of Jotham the son of Jerubbabel. All right, boys and girls in box two, you can draw a woman dropping a rock on the head of a man who's holding a torch. Okay, and it's not like a giant rock. It's only like a nine-pound rock, so it's like this size. You know, a little bit bigger than a softball, like a volleyball-sized rock. What Abimelech wanted most was honor and respect, and instead, he doesn't get that. But God seems to have been forgotten for the entire chapter until the very end. It seems like all is going well for Abimelech and his rage monster. Until God brings justice. Now, I'm going to come to some application points, but as I noted a few weeks ago, there is violence in the book of Judges, and it's troubling to our conscience. It's troubling to our minds. I want to give you a brief excursus on the violence in the book of Judges, a couple of recommendations, and I want to make some application for the end of the sermon. Okay, so, though the book of Judges is fascinating, it can be troubling. Does this book teach us that God rewards violence, and does it teach us to engage in the concept of holy war today? Those are good questions. Most of my answers come from Tim Keller's book, Judges for You. It's an accessible commentary, a valuable one. I'd suggest maybe looking at it for the whole book of Judges, and I'm going to give you another recommendation other recommendation, if you really want to take a deep dive, a couple hundred pages on the concept of holy war in the Bible, the ethics of it in the Old Testament, what's different in it, I'm going to recommend a heavier, weightier book called Holy War in the Bible. It is edited by Heath Thomas. So you want to take a deep dive, holy war, if you want to look at the book of Judges and a brief section on this, Judges for You by Tim Keller. All right. First, you need to acknowledge when we think about what they were supposed to have done in Joshua's time that they began to do again and did incompletely in the beginning of Judges, recognizing that this was commanded by God in Joshua and Judges, and it's not something that is commanded of God's people for the rest of the Bible. This was a one-time, one-place type of thing. This is a unique thing that God had told them to do, to take a land and to wipe out all the people. This was a specific holy war at a specific time that is not recorded for God to do elsewhere. And since we don't have God speaking the same way, I'm very confident that the Crusades are not a good example for whether they were doing like they were supposed to have done in the time of Joshua and Judges today. Okay? So, Crusades, bad idea. One time, one area, Joshua Judges. Also, as I noted a couple of weeks ago, we do not find simple genocide here in holy war. Rahab from Jericho trusted in the Lord and was spared in the book of Joshua. So also Ruth the Moabitess turned to the Lord during the time period of the judges, and both of these ladies from unusual backgrounds from the nations that they were to be conquering are in the genealogy of Jesus, in fact Ruth being the great-grandmother of King David. Not only was it not genocide, it was not at all for personal gain. They were not to be becoming rich by taking stuff. When conquering people, you normally kept the stuff. But in Joshua 7, Achan was condemned for taking some of the loot for himself. 
This was not about being prosperous and powerful, but they were to honor and serve the Lord. It's carried out as God's judgment through direct revelation from God in that time, and that is not what we have for us to do today. The conquest was also the fulfillment of God's promises hundreds of years earlier. When taken all together, these points remind us not to engage in holy war for church or country today. We don't have God's promises to the nation of the United States to take a land or to fulfill some version of crusades with direct revelation. God was bringing judgment to the nations that did not repent, whose wickedness was great. And if you're reading through the book of Judges, you're like, but what about God's people? Wasn't their wickedness great? Yes, and in some cases, it's even worse than the nations. So what we really should be startled by in the book of Judges is not the violence that is occurring at the hands of Israel on behalf of the nations, but the fact that God is merciful to the Israelites and to us. The Canaanites deserve punishment for their wickedness and rebellion, and so did Israel, but God showed his unmerited mercy and grace to Israel initially. We also deserve justice and punishment for the consequences of sin, but in Christ we can experience God's mercy and grace. End of chapter 9, we've concluded chapter 10, gives us a few very small judges. I'm not going to read from them, and then we'll pick up in verse 6 next week. But what's different by the time we get to Abimelech, after these other judges, after Gideon, there was rest in the land. Things were okay, not good. After Abimelech, there is no rest. There's no peace in the land. It's just bad. Sin is unraveled, and it's spiraled out of control. Sin spirals out of control. As James 1, 14 and 15 warns us, about the pathway of sin, stating this very thing, that sin, each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it conceives, gives forth to death. Sin, and sin when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That is the pathway of sin. The path of sin is starting inside with desires and being enticed. It gives birth to sin. Sin fully grown brings forth death, and that's what's happening. The book of Judges is a display of that from the very beginning when the people almost obeyed God completely, started off just a little ways off course and never course corrected. In fact, not only did they not course correct, they got worse and worse. All right, there's a graph showing up on the screen. Some of you will recognize this from math classes. This is as close to math as we're getting here. I'm showing you the difference in a linear pattern of sin, distancing yourself from God, and an exponential pattern where it just gets worse and worse. That orange, or sorry, that brown line is what actually happens with sin. What we think happens with sin is really, at worst, that blue line. We think, hey, I just did a little thing. I'm just going to go a little further and a little further and a little further. And it might get a little worse, but it's never going to like get really bad. But in the book of Judges, we see the path that is actually true of life. And it's like, hey, it doesn't even look like the results are happening bad at first. It looks at first like things, eh, hey, things aren't really going that badly. And then all of a sudden, it's like, boom, the bottom falls out and sin has spiraled out of control. Sin spirals out of control. Sin can't be confined. Sin starts little. And just like they thought it wasn't that big of a deal, we can confine it. And then all of a sudden, sin causes us to redefine our boundaries. 
And then quickly, we have deleted the entire series of boundaries and called the boundaries a bad idea in the first place. There's an exponentially getting worse factor that is happening all throughout the book of Judges, and it happens in our life too. Sin spirals out of control. Sin promises something it never delivers. It costs us more and more, and it rewards us less and less, and it leads to great destruction, as warned by James in 1.14 and 15. But notice James 1.16. It gives us a beautiful passage. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. As opposed to the path of sin that deceives us and destroys us, God is the giver of good gifts. God's gifts are delightful, and they do not lead to destruction. You don't have to just say no to sin. We say yes to delighting in God and what he has granted us. In contrast to the destructive effects of sin, God gives us good things for us to delight in him and in them and praise him for them. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He is the fount from whom all blessing flows. And we need to rejoice in his blessing and give thanks to them. They were being led astray and sin was spiraling out of control. They were not delighting in God's gifts and they were following the path of destruction as opposed to in God's delightful good gifts. And though Abimelech may have thought things were going well, the people may have thought things were going well for a little while, sin is not forgotten, point 2a. Sin is not forgotten. Galatians chapter 6 reminds us that what we reap, that we reap what we sow, that what we plant is what we harvest. The passage says this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. The one who sows to his flesh will reap the fle- from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Okay? If you plant watermelon seed, don't expect to grow bananas. If you plant in your life a pattern of sin, don't expect God's blessing. If you're giving all of yourself to the wrong things, don't expect things to continue to go well. It looked for a season like things were going well, but God does not forget their pattern of sin. Sin is not forgotten. Whether you don't remember it or others don't remember it, God still does. Sin is not forgotten for Abimelech. It's not forgotten for the people of Shechem. What you plant is what grows in your life, and God is granting time for them and for us, calling us to repentance. As Romans 2 says in verse 4, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not knowing His kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render each according to his works. Sin is not forgotten by God. It leads to wrath and God's fury and justice eventually. God doesn't forget sin. But he can choose to not hold it against us. Instead of sin being forgotten as in if God can never remember something, God can choose to not remember it against us. Sin can be forgiven to be. Sin cannot be forgotten, but sin can be forgiven and atoned for and paid for 
as 1 John chapter 1, verses 7 and following tell us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. When we confess our sins and turn to Christ, we are forgiven. We don't have to work to earn that. We're given God's righteousness through Christ and his forgiveness. God doesn't forget the punishment and justice we require. Instead, he allows Christ to absorb and take the punishment of our sin, as chapter 2 will tell us with Christ, our atoning sacrifice or propitiation. But we don't always build our lives upon that fact. Remember, God had done something for them at the end of Gideon's life, and they forgot God. Point 3a, when you lose your focus on the past and what God has done in it, you will lose the battle with sin in the future. When you forget what God's rescued you from and for, you're likely to need rescue from a bad situation yet again. When you lose your focus on what God has done in the past, in Judges 8, 34, they had forgotten. They did not remember God and his saving and delivering works. They didn't remember. They had spiritual amnesia that led to idolatry and drastic consequences. But we do not have to fall prey to spiritual amnesia and losing the focus on what God has done. Instead, 3B, when you focus on what God has done in the past, you can experience victory in the battle against sin, the present, and for the future. 1 John 2, 1, immediately after telling us in chapter 1 at the end, about confessing Christ. He is faithful. He forgives us. He cleanses us. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Not because you've sinned in the past, but he's writing this version of the gospel and his commands for his people are in light of what God has already done that they might not sin. I'm writing these things so that you wouldn't sin in the present and future based upon what God has done in the past. And if you do sin, Remember, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. By remembering Jesus' work in our place in the past, we can walk with God in the present, saying no to sin and having our paths set differently than those that forget what God has saved them from and saved them for. So why, Pastor Jason, do you preach the gospel? Why do we sing about Jesus each and every week? Because we don't want to lose a past focus on what God has done for us that we can never do for ourselves, that is both our rescue for forever, that gives us a new trajectory forever and empowers our work day to day. We don't sin now as we reflect on the gospel. So if you're struggling with a pathway of sin right now, if your life is marked by any number of things controlling you, that exponential curve, and it's gotten a hold of you, and you're realizing, you know what? You thought you had a box around your sin, and it has exploded your box, and it's controlling your life. You know what the pathway is to being right with God? It's through Christ. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, today can be that day where you recognize God my sin, I can't forget it, and you can't forget it, so I need it forgiven. And it cries out for justice. 
But the pages of the Bible tell us that Jesus absorbed the just punishment of God against our sin for those that trust in him. He took our punishment, absorbed our justice to display his mercy and grace. Let us be warned from the spiraling effects of sin in the book of Judges. It goes from bad to worse when you forget the Lord and to make him the one in control of your day to day. He is our rock. He is our redeemer. He is the one in whom we trust. And if I can talk or pray with you, I'll be available in the back during this final song. Now let's rise, stand, sing, and respond.